You're the town's superhero. Your greatest enemy is the town's supervillain. However, secretly, you're both brothers. This isn't anything tragic, as your whole destructive rivalry is actually just a massive prank on your third brother, the mayor. Even if you're the smartest guy around, what would you do if he showed up and kicked you off his block? It would all look really weird, right? However, I guess you'd still look really stupid. That was it for the next chapter. This day was the culmination of my own efforts. I made my way to the place where I'd become a familiar face. With a sigh, I left the office with a loud thud. For the first time there had to have been a new hero. Well, it wasn't. It was just a normal day, a special day with all the new faces. With the thought of it, I was thinking of something. My sister was at work. She said a few vague words to get me to leave. After the second she left, I got up and went towards the exit of the office. My father was at home. I was walking from front to back when someone showed up. Hello father. The person in front of me who didn't return my call. I'm really tired, I want to ask you some questions about something. Why you're looking like this father has a strange, mysterious face. It's actually my dad. He's pretty good at looking at people but he's not very good at saying weird things like ah, how could you be so stupid? Um, huh? My father's expression seemed to be getting darker as he saw me leave. So, what kind of person would he be? He is the strongest human in the entire capital city. He is the one that brought me this strange guy and ran off to the main city. With my father's power in his aura, he's able to do whatever he wants. When all went south, the other city was destroyed, and then all the monsters came out to kill all the citizens, so the city is completely destroyed. He also did the same thing right now as well, and gave our town a bad name. Then people had to leave because all this is so scary. That's my dad in my eyes. Are you really that nice? In both my own opinion, my father was the best because I think I could feel his emotion in his eyes. I even felt that anger towards my sister who started worrying my mind. Then, his eyes suddenly popped open like a bubble. It won't be too long before he disappears from the main city. There are people still living in this area. But his aura is extremely strong, and if you look carefully, there's already a lot of people who have seen him from the main city, even the soldiers are all doing their best to protect him, even the children are all looking forward to seeing him. And he's like this very much. I thought my brother's strong and his aura is even stronger than his father's. At least his spirit level is lower than ours and he's no lower than his father. He has a kind of strength. If I can see it, I think he'll be stronger than me. Even though we're young, that's still much better for me than my father's strength. The way I looked at this guy, there was a lot of animosity, a bit disdain in his eyes. At that moment, I could feel something that even my mom wasn't able to see. Her body suddenly moved in the air, like a ball of fire. With a soft, cold sound, I put three fingers on her right thigh. As sorry mommy, I'm sorry, sorry. I couldn't move. I held her up to the outside, not wanting to do my legwork. Her body immediately started growing big with the pressure and she started screaming, and then her head was completely smashed apart. Her legs suddenly became smaller and smaller. Well, I'll just take that as a sign. I won't forget this for a while, right? The next moment everyone on the ground could suddenly feel her scream, and then her body suddenly became big with the pressure. However, in one hit, her head appeared over the side of the ground and suddenly vanished. 
There were a lot of people who knew her, but they could only vaguely describe and look at her to make sure that her screams were real. So what happened? Is she alright? You know that you and your brother are the heroes all around here. Is about what happens to the man after an accident, and it feels that way about me. I can't express this perfectly. But then sometimes, when things get really traumatic I come to grips with pain without actually trying to explain what it was and why it was happening. Sometimes someone I'd never told about had to experience the experiences. The pain was too great, so I had to start over. I told everyone why. What? I'm still here. What are you trying to get rid of? And people started calling him a monster. There was nothing like you seeing me. There was nothing real. You were just a child. My parents used to call him Ariel the Giant. They didn't know anything about him. But then I started trying to figure it out. And they were talking. Every time I talked, he would respond with, You've been in the past five minutes. They said, You don't care. You just don't see him, so you let him. My father used to tell me all about that, but it turned a sour note out of him, as all the other kids in the family wanted me to tell. I never understood why he would say that. Instead of telling me he saw me as the monster, the child, he said we were monsters, that we were all so fragile and in pain. And I never could explain it. What makes this even more confusing to me is that my dad didn't really see me that way. I told people, he must remember me, or I'm still alive so he won't believe me. I felt like people had betrayed me when I told them I knew they were wrong. I was so shocked to know they didn't care. I spent as much time trying to understand it as possible. But also trying to fix it by being in touch with the person who told me to stop. It was a weird time. My father got out of his mind before ever hearing of this or having children. What he once didn't want to have was to tell anyone about. He didn't want to learn. But there was the little thing called talking therapy, with a therapist who didn't like kids, had a vision that had already been seen all the time. It was just something he didn't want to hear from himself. He never got used to hearing or having to explain it. He wouldn't stop until it was over. How could it be wrong? My dad began to develop a more active and meaningful connection to people outside of him as he got older. His parents became more open about what matters to them, such as raising children together. It didn't hurt that I was in their care, too. My father didn't want to play for their future, too, although he believed if he didn't play he would be hurt. But it was his choice. He was happy with how things went along for him. He was happy to play for their future, no matter what. He liked that people came to him for some reason, and he wanted to be around them. He had a connection with them because they cared. What was his idea of a loving family? My father believed this. He said, I don't think it would do me any good to live without them, them. But that didn't mean he didn't want them. He wanted a family to be with others. In other words they were there to watch over him when he needed it, too. Every family wanted to see him as he was supposed to be. I always said that there was a problem in the world with my father, that he was just too different from people who were his relatives every day. I wouldn't even say we had to be family. That I was, but because of him. People understood that you can't see other people unless you look at them and know they're there for you. And that's what I believed in. I believed people had to be with me because they had nothing like that. I'm still here. So many people who were there to see him change their lives. I've heard some of these things again and again, the last thing we want to do is be with him. You're dead in my arms. You'd be nice. 
The next thing we know you're dead inside. I still hold your hands. This was my father's dream for a kid named Jonathan, who would later die in his sleep with me, but he wanted to never leave me. I couldn't believe it. But he was too important to me. He wasn't afraid to talk about it with me, so I kept it a secret with my friends, my parents. Sometimes he asked me if I wanted to get married and had me married too. This was my father's dream for a kid named Jonathan, who would later die in his sleep with me, but he wanted to never leave me. I couldn't believe it. But he was too important to me. He wasn't afraid to talk about it with me, so I kept it a secret with my friends, my parents. Sometimes he asked me if I wanted to get married and had me married too. The process of getting married gave me a different perspective, a life that had all been a disappointment but there was still time and an effort and a place to be both. A year later, in 2002, I married myself. This was my first marriage. In 2000, he called me by his nickname. We started together for the first time in years. I started out with a few of my classmates and colleagues, but at the same time we started to be friends. I was looking forward to that big opportunity. I realized with Jonathan that marriage was a process. One way to understand how I grew up in a different world than you think, is that after I was born in 1994, all I knew was that I was going to fall in love, a world of happy love and when I was 16, I realized that that was the age of the perfect person. I knew that I wanted to move west by summer of 2004. So when I was 12, I did not have a car. I got married. I had an idea for something, a dream, and I was ready to go. So I started planning my marriage. I met with my college professors. I came up with the idea of a plan. I started writing my own rules. And then I got a job. A year later you can call it what you want to be. And the answer was, yes, that's right. I had many of my friends talk about this and I like that. But with marriage, so many of the rules don't apply because there are so many rules. I'm not trying to make every single decision easier, I'm saying that you have to learn the rules in order to make it work. I still talk about marriage sometimes as a matter of teaching. When people see my wife in the mirror, they'll say, she's not really this beautiful. And I'll tell them the truth. I have no idea if she's trying to be gorgeous or not. If it's just a physicality they can't understand, then it's just not true. And so I don't mind that women are beautiful when they're looking at me like it's some big dream of the moment. For some, yes. This is what I want this relationship to be about. But in the end, most women don't get this. I know, I know, you were always like that because you were beautiful when you were still kids. But now, in some ways, we live in a world where we're still not as beautiful. A lot of us have this thing we say, how can we be beautiful to one another? How could we be people when we just want to be a beautiful woman? But in my mind, I can honestly say that not getting married to a woman is just not enough of a motivation. When I look around at the world, I see men who are more interested in sex outside of marriage, who are very interested in what they do. And if men look away from marriage and their thoughts, then it's because they were thinking of something else. But not getting married is just not enough. And yet it gets to be a place where you go to sleep at night in your bedroom, and you're like, oh, this isn't normal. It's more fun. It's more comfortable to be here with your new boyfriend than being here with your new girlfriend's new boyfriend. You're like, you don't know who you're going to be? I'm like, I haven't met anyone who's excited. I haven't met anyone, like, 
I'm probably not even close to being ready to go to love. What are you going to like out here? What is the experience like? But if you want to be attractive, you have to look at something you see and that it's something you look at and put it all on a scale of 1, 2 and 3 on a scale of 5. So, I don't know how to make them enjoy all that that's my guess. But I can tell you that there's a time, and it's not good for them. But if you want to be attractive, you have to look at something you see and that it's something you look at and put it all on a scale of 1, 2 and 3 on a scale of 5. So, I don't know how to make them enjoy all that that's my guess. But I can tell you that there's a time, and it's not good for them. There's a time and a place where it's not good for them to be happy and healthy but, you know, it's like this moment in time where you get a hug from somebody. And I hope you get a hug from me in that very moment. Laughter, and the one thing I want to know about this is that when you look at other people, all you get for being happy about something is their emotions going into that moment. So, that would have to exist at that moment when it's good for you to be happy and healthy. And that is a very small part of being a human being. Amy Goodman, alright. So, how do we understand that when I was in love with you for years and years because you wanted it? Do you know what your feelings were toward that marriage? Because, you know, it was such a beautiful one just at that time. And now it's been so bad. Todd Brown, well, first of all, I guess it's sad. It could be so many things. I mean, look at this little thing, I'm married to Amy Baldwin, I'm married to Lena Dunham, I'm married to Lena Dunham. So, we were all kind of looking out for one another as children, so that's probably why we made it through that difficult time of your marriage. And it's good to have both of us on the stage at a time like this and that, because I think sometimes people get so wrapped up in all this stuff that the reality of that time isn't exactly the same. But that's exactly what's meant is we were all still in love with one another, that is to say, we were in a situation where it seemed so impossible and so unbelievable to get something so small that was beautiful. I mean, I mean it became so easy for everybody. We could say that it was really, like, something big and wonderful. We just couldn't get things to even look beautiful. And so when we're married, I guess we all kind of feel like we've never met someone, we've never touched anything, we could go to dinner together like it's never going to get any better and we go to great things. But this one was just so much. The moment was so perfect. And the last time I went out with him, not even an hour after it happened, we came out with the best record. And the last time, I guess I remember he was so, so happy. And, you know, when that love ended, my heart sank. I mean, for some reason, I thought, well, this isn't it. This is still so much to love for two of us, right? We think it's worth the effort to spend a good part of our lives with each other, but I think that's really, it's really, really important to make sure that those two who just won't ever become together even if they were together for a year, two years, two years, two years, just to live life and then we all are so happy and so happy and so happy and just the kind of people we just love and feel for two people, because that's part of who you are, you know? To live for two people is very special. So, that's why, just because of the love you brought to us in this life, all of a sudden, we're all living very differently and things are really moving. Todd Brown, so, the other thing because you never meet any of us, we're not just hanging out here. We're all living together. You know I feel like we're all together and I think that's really interesting for us because it's just like, you know these two women we're spending so much time with I mean, 
they're so much bigger in our hearts and so much more beautiful than us, right? We think for them, our relationship is that of a love child well, that's kind of what it is, actually, in our lives, and so that's kind of what we're talking about. In many ways, I think I feel like we're living together, and I get it, we think that's beautiful. Todd Brown, so, the other thing because you never meet any of us, we're not just hanging out here. We're all living together. You know I feel like we're all together and I think that's really interesting for us because it's just like, you know these two women we're spending so much time with I mean, they're so much bigger in our hearts and so much more beautiful than us, right? We think for them, our relationship is that of a love child well, that's kind of what it is, actually, in our lives, and so that's kind of what we're talking about. In many ways, I think I feel like we're living together, and I get it, we think that's beautiful. I feel like I'm living right on the edge when people talk about these things just because there was this woman who I thought was incredible for me, and then I think it's a wonderful story because we see ourselves all around us, and it's the best we can do as people there was a good time for most others, and so this was the best time for most of others, because that's what we think of that you think of as an amazing woman. I don't feel like I'm saying anything good about you and I think you can take it that way. Mr. O'Connor, and I also love to see this, that's not the kind of relationship that I think we all do. We all want a good family and we all want love, so you know the rest of us. Mr. O'Connor, I think I know that. I feel like because I got married to you and I'm married to my partner, it was just like, just love, there's just so much to love about all of us. So I'm absolutely fine with that but I also feel like we're very personal with each other and it's just the way we're living together and feeling close and how we're loving each other. You know, I don't love to get carried away. No. I love to spend time with my baby brothers and with those sisters and for things like that. You but I don't have that kind of time, because I have been having this very hard time with my own kids, and so maybe that's a bit of a personal thing. Mr. O'Connor, it's just, it's just, I guess you can do whatever you want about that, but there is a lot we learn from that. Mr. O'Connor, I mean, that of course, there is. So as a producer, it really is just the very intimate kind of relationship that you can make in that dose and take advantage of everybody. I think we just have to learn how to be good listeners and keep the relationship as open as it may be, just to be able to talk and talk and talk. Mr. O'Connor, like, all the things you think of as loving people I mean, you would give me the same kind of sense of a relationship that I get with so many of these women, but I think that of those things just when I think of our lives, I think almost like in the same way, because I can take them at their word. I don't want to see some guy get a pass, though. Mr. O'Connor, like, all the things you think of as loving people I mean, you would give me the same kind of sense of a relationship that I get with so many of these women, but I think that of those things just when I think of our lives, I think almost like in the same way, because I can take them at their word. I don't want to see some guy get a pass, though. I think a guy might go one wrong here, and I didn't know what a bad guy I had. I love men. I don't want someone who wants to see me with a stick and a gun and go, wah, you can't stand up to this type of person, mate, they're tough, they're tough. I don't like to see a guy who wants to see me, I didn't know the type of person you had to live with like that, and I don't wish them harm. And that kind of is really quite sad to watch. I think that's the kind of approach that some people are taking. We don't want people who love us to suffer the guilt of having to live with us that we didn't want or what we should not know or what we 
therapist should be doing to bring things to that kind of conclusion. Amy Goodman, and this? Kirby Messenger, he wasn't going to feel that way. Martin Kitson, we weren't going to feel any guilt. We weren't going to feel any sympathy. Amy Goodman, you weren't going to feel any guilt for making up. Kirby Messenger, yeah. Amy Goodman, a joke, in the form of, no, I think I saw this coming. So I just thought it would be funny if I made up. Now, you said it again. Martin Kitson, yeah. And again, that was part of it. All the stuff that I felt that was so horrible and had a negative impact on people was part of it. So that's, you know, one way to feel bad and still go for it. Because it wasn't tea about you, you know, I will never be perfect. If that means you know the way you look of women, and that's what I mean by looking at men, I can go into a woman's life and say, maybe I am not perfect, but I have good days, sometimes I feel great. And I say, don't worry, I am. If you don't have that, then I will. I want people who know like-minded women of a certain era, to enjoy and feel like, oh, so she wants to see my perfect day because that is what it is. It was all on the same level where I felt, oh, God, there was a million people who didn't know the level of how beautiful and how beautiful women were. And women were just, as you say, very, very easygoing, very kind, and in some cases like, I really, I don't like people who do not know how much we do for each other. And that was kind of the reason why it's not just one thing that gets to me and that is tea going to get better with each passing week. We are just trying to enjoy each other. The thing about what you said last night when you said, is there a difference between love, love that has to exist to survive, and the desire to live and flourish on the way? And who are these people that were at the center of my writing for all these hours and hours of time that you am going to find them that are all that you tea looking for in life? And who are the people who make their lives seem like they are about you because they made your life seem like it like they were about you? One gone's less, and you put those words out there and said, Kirby Message, that is the difference between yesterday and today. Amy Goodman, I want to make a comment about a little story I read recently with a very nice and brilliant Sarah Leah Whitson, author of The Good Life. Amy Goodman. I want to make a comment about a little story I read recently with the very nice and brilliant Sarah Leah Whitson, author of The Good Life, What You Never Knew About the World You Deserve. After she got the book published she began to think about the world being really nice to you. Is it true that your parents hated you because you were different? What advice would you give people about having different opinions on anything about having a different personality in a world where your mom can't talk you into acting differently when you're young? Sarantha Shelton, it's great to say that that's sort of true. I don't think I have a lot of words that I would say to people who, despite their lack of understanding, may be right or conservative about what they think of the world. Amy Goodman, so you say that it is possible we may have these biases or are we being misinformed? Sarantha Shelton, well, that seems to my mind. We're not going to get into the philosophical, 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 Philosophical questions we're asking right now because this is this is a very complex issue, but it's got to be discussed there. Break. Amy Goodman, you didn't die. You had a pretty good life. Now in 2008 the State Department published a report entitled What Can We Do About It? We can do about it right now. They say that this sort of thing is all too common these days because of, of course, the fact now that they talk about what they think of the world. 
This is one of those things where they really let you I'd say they're just so happy to talk about it and to have us all agree and then to they're so angry about that it's completely out of the question. They start crying. They're really, genuinely sad. I mean, that's how you know it's really out of the question if you think about it. It's totally out of the question right? Because there's a lot of anger that comes up when things like climate change are talked about. And you know what's great? Because the thing is that all of a sudden there's this really big issue about climate change that we have to debate. And it's, you know, you say this and I say this when my kids have the books but I'm not buying it. Amy Goodman, can you talk about the science that you're talking about and how this can help you feel better about it? Sarantha Shelton, well, I mean, actually I mean it's a pretty simple scientific way of saying, well, these things are the same for different things and different things are different for different people. One of the things I've come to think about with respect to is the relationship that people experience when it comes to their perceptions of science. When you look at that, we're talking about perceptions of the world. You know, it's not so simple. We have so much different things in the world today than there would be during previous millennia when things would be just the same. And people make many comments about climate change and whether it's good or bad in their own minds, but if they know from experience like people do that the way things are now, there's no question it's bad. All of a sudden, you know, why don't we believe this, or that, or anything? And it's not like that anymore. There's really no difference in people's perceptions of that the way they feel. Amy Goodman, all of a sudden people say, we can't do this and we're going to do that. So how do we feel about not doing that yet? When you say, no, it's not terrible enough. We shouldn't do it. What do you hope people are thinking when this topic is discussed and what should we hope people are thinking when the problem grows wider? Amy Goodman, all of a sudden people say, we can't do this and we're going to do that. So how do we feel about not doing that yet? When you say, no, it's not terrible enough. We shouldn't do it. What do you hope people are thinking when this topic is discussed and what should we hope people are thinking when the problem grows wider? You know, you know, people are just doing it. What are you hoping that people find out about the possibility that this could bring a better world to the United States? What's next for people? Joshua Bennis, actually, I think we have to focus more on those things, and that's probably what my colleagues and I have really tried to do. I think it's time now to recognize that if we're going to develop a vision that really is sustainable, our responsibility should be to try to be a lot more honest about what we're trying to do in our actions. We should try, yes, to get people to stop making decisions based on what's available. And then we can, as we should try to do here where we can find that balance. I think that's what, what we've talked about you know, I think the problem we've had for a moment in the Obama presidency has been a feeling that, well, I'm being really irresponsible now, and that's not going to go away because we're not doing enough to solve the problems in the world. The problem is that even when we do actually get to solve the problems we need to have a vision about the future and what we're going to be able to do to improve this future. We don't really have that vision, and it was really a sense of optimism coming in. Sarah Joro, I think that's one of the things we did. We're going to continue doing what's called pro-family policies and that's what we're calling I think, in part to say, we have to take the leadership. We can't turn our back on our own children, we have to turn our backs on their grandchildren, our children's children's kids, our adult kids, our kids' children's kids. And we have this vision that is called progressive. 
So that's how we really try to reach that point. Amy Goodman, it was during that interview that this reporter went up against Donald Trump. He's speaking to a group of Latino journalists who were at the convention holding up a poster at the convention saying, now we know that we have to support LGBT people for elected office. You'll never be able to vote openly against another elected official. Children of the New York Cup, I guess it still can't go well for everybody in America. We still have 2 billion people in this country who don't know what the hell we are talking about or what this community is about. We still have a lot of people who are not here today and who aren't going to be here in 3 or 4 years, but we're really talking to those who are at the top in the economy, and I think what we should focus more on and what we should focus on here is helping people realize that there are people who are trying and not getting anywhere because they're not in their own country but trying to make ends meet, that they're not living in a bubble and are going to die or get divorced, we are bringing people into this and that we need to make sure that they're in their own nation and at the same time we're going to move them and make sure that they live with dignity and respect. I think what we've said to other countries is we want to live in a land of opportunity. We want to be where, and that's where we're at. And in that land of opportunity is America where you live, where you work. And now we have to work more. That's been our greatest hope for a long time. And how do you know you're not alone in this country and you're not alone in your own country? We have to start all over again because a lot of the people that are running for president of the United States or running for president we still have the great opportunity of being in office and I think it's going to be a very different country than this country is today or for many decades to come because a lot of people are getting involved, that's what we're seeing happening. Amy Goodman, so they're saying that this could be what they call a gender-based war? But you said there'd be nothing more progressive than a political party in it. Amy Goodman. So they're saying that this could be what they call a gender-based war? But you said there'd be nothing more progressive than a political party in it. Can you describe what you mean that you're talking about? Amy Goodman, yeah, right? So, they're saying that this campaign is what they call a gender-based coalition? And, you know, what happens if it comes off as a gender-based coalition is that a majority of the people who supported it will now stop voting for it. You know, they say, well, now they're out of touch, they're in charge or they're against it. Juan Gonzalez, I mean there are 100,000 people who didn't vote for the Republican Party. Amy Goodman, what did you think of the new convention in Cleveland? Juan Gonzalez, well, I think that there was a lot of debate, especially in the media, about whether there was a mandate or whether it was necessary. And what I think, from a liberal point of view, of both parties, is that this is the first time in human history that the entire structure of politics is based on race and gender. And I think I think it is important to talk about this because the way we talk about this, especially what happened in New York that took place the night that we announced so many months ago, is that the Republican Party came clean. It wasn't just that they didn't like Clinton, it was that they saw fit to say, hey, I mean, you are Hillary, you are the President of the United States, you are the commander-in-chief of the military and this is not an option or that you should be supporting her. And then they said, how do we fix it? Well, if I'm the commander-in-chief of the military, I'm on a team of two or three of them and if I'm not, I'd like to come up with a plan for it, like and I believe it has been done in the past. And I'm certainly willing to go along with that. But, you know, that's not how that, to some degree, is what I think of when I say, you know, I can't go along with that. Why should I? 
And I think there are many, many other ideas that, you know, if you actually read through all the work that has been done, you'll discover that this whole whole thing has been utterly discredited by the very people who believe and I respect that. People who didn't actually come forward and put out all the work. And I think that at the end of the day, it's important that we, as a party, start to listen with the full skepticism of people who think that the entire idea of this party is flawed simply because it's all nonsense. And it's completely ridiculous. Amy Goodman, we're going to take questions from the host, Mark Halperin, our guest, Jim Acosta, an outspoken critic of the DNC and a former federal prosecutor. Thanks, Mark for having us with you. Mark Holvitz, this is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Mark Halperin. I'm on phone from San Diego. The war in Syria has been going on for a long time, but you're probably wondering why I'm there and why I'm here today. Today, at the same time that the United States is preparing to pull out of the Syrian regime of President Bashar Assad, the United States is preparing to withdraw from Libya of the country, and a number of other parts of the Middle East. The situation was, Amy Goodman, Mark, as a Republican,